Hello and welcome to yet another episode of One Thing Led to Another. This is a storytelling podcast where I interview authors and writers about their storytelling techniques and look to uncover just how one effectively takes one thing and leads it to another. My guest for this episode is Weatu Moore, who is the author of She Would Be King, which is her debut novel that was released in September of 2018. She is also the founder of One More Book. One More Book is a nonprofit organization that encourages reading among children of countries with low literacy rates and underrepresented cultures by publishing culturally relevant books that speak to their truths and by creating bookstores and reading corners that serve their communities. In the conversation with Weatu, I can tell you for one that she truly appreciates the importance of story, and she very wonderfully explains the importance of story and how story is so intertwined with identity as well as culture and really the importance of story. Um, her book is absolutely phenomenal. It is a... Uh, it, it's classified as magical realism, also magical historical fiction. It, it retells the story of how Liberia came to be. Um, it is a truly wonderful book, and I strongly encourage you to go check that out and also look into her nonprofit, One More Book. She also has a memoir coming this year or early next year, so be on the lookout for that. But I will take no more time away from her and all the wonderful things that she has to say. So stay tuned for that interview. And also, I must ask that you check out our previous episodes and also share and like and follow this podcast so that your friends can listen as well. But without further ado, here is Where to More. hello hello how are you i'm well thank you how are you i am doing wonderful i do have a little bit of a cold so i have to apologize for the raspness of my voice it's okay i don't i don't hear it oh okay wonderful so i find that the best place to start is um if you could introduce yourself and your work and your career to any of my listeners who may not know who you are previously Okay, great. My name is Wyatt Moore. I am a, a novelist. My debut came out September of last year. The name of the novel is She Would Be King. Um, and I'm also an entrepreneur of a, a nonprofit um, that creates and distributes books for children who rarely see themselves in books. And we also create spaces for um, the communities that these children live in as well. And I am a wife and sister of, um, I have four siblings and uh, a daughter and an auntie and the, the latter roles I love, I love the most. <laughs> Wonderful. So let's actually start with She Would Be King. Um, where did the initial idea for this novel come from? And then what was sort of the final push for you to start writing it? Okay, so I, um, my family immigrated to America from Liberia in 
1991 in February. So I was five years old and we moved around quite a bit. We lived in New York initially. My mom was a student at Columbia. We actually lived in her dorm room for the rest of her four or five months that she had there. Then we lived in Connecticut and Memphis and we settled in Texas when I was eight. And all the communities we lived in were um, very white, conservative, um, homogenous. And I remember going home and my dad and mom, they did whatever they could to keep us tethered to Liberia through the foods and the music and also through its history. And I, I remember as a kid feeling like Liberia's history was so closely linked to American history and closely linked to Black identity, just, um, you know, the dialogue around Black identity. But I never heard about it outside of my home. And so when I became an artist, Liberia was naturally the first place that I went to, trying to explore that history, my own personal history, as well as the the country's larger history. And um, when I was in college, initially, what I'd been writing was was mostly like identity geared fiction. So essays and stories around what it's like to be both um, an African in America um, and an African-American. And Mm -hmm. a friend in college asked me about writing African fiction. And so I, I tried it out. I wrote about 20 pages which um, really was just fleshing out uh, a myth that I'd been told. And from there, I started to think about the village that the myth occurred in and um, the, the context of the world around the village at the time. And that's where, where the, the book was, was born. Excellent. So the book is categorized often I've seen as magical historical fiction or magical realism. Um, And when working within that genre, I mean, readers have a certain suspension of belief, but how do you, how do you maintain the believability of the magical and fantastical parts of the book and not go, go too far in the fantastical? Yeah, so I I just rarely heard any story that didn't include these fantastical elements, um, you know, conversations with the supernatural reverence to ancestors that was just in the shape and form of story as I was introduced to it. So when I started to write, I naturally went to that form. Um, It was what was most organic to me. So I think in an American context, it is seen as otherworldly and straying from fiction, but culturally for me, um, based on my inheritance from my mother and grandmother and these storytellers who impacted me in a very profound way, um, that's just what I understood of story. So I don't, I wouldn't say that it um, has as much intentionality as, as one would think. Uh, It's something that that just sort of happened and flowed. And, and, and certainly um, what contributes to that is that when I started to write this story, I, I, I wrote the myth first. And so really that set the pace and, and um, established a direction that I would go in or that I could go in. And I, and I chose to lean into that. Okay. So then the book is about three characters, three it has three central characters. Um, and one of the questions I had after reading the book is, 
the characters themselves and their role within the story is very important to the plot. But I think you also do a wonderful job of making the characters seem as individuals and seem to be like their own person. And one thing that I find a lot of times is a problem within novels is that characters sometimes seem like they're just cogs to the plot. How did you go about making sure that that didn't happen with your characters, especially since they were their lives and who they are so integral to the plot itself? Hmm. I think with creating characters, I try to just um, create the most truthful, the most honest um, iterations of of people that I that I can. I don't believe anyone is all good, and I don't believe anyone is all bad. I think people are very complex, and so if um, in writing history, specifically when it deals with colonialism and slavery, I think even me in a first draft, I can admit that I was perhaps telling telling the story in the binary where it was good versus evil and, you know, uh, slaveholders versus slaves, which in many ways manifested in white versus black and settlers versus natives. And, and in my during my research and in the conversations that I was having with Liberians um, and in just being an observer of everyday life and everyday interactions, realizing that no, that is not how people work. And that certainly isn't how history works. There, there was a lot of nuance. And once I sort of disengaged telling stories in the binary and really just tried to tell people in all of their complexity and crystallize that complexity, um, that's where the characters came from. I was able to flesh out and and hoped that I portrayed some of their weaknesses and the things that maybe they were struggling with and battling with individually. And each of these characters represent a corner on the transatlantic trade. And I think in telling their stories, I was also trying to explore the story of the group that they represented. So Bessa being um, indigenous to Liberia, wanting to tell the story of her being Christianized and quote unquote civilized and being sort of drowning, drowning, drowned by the superstitions of her, her natural context. And um, with June Day, you know, wrestling with the, the notion of what Africa is and what Africa perhaps would mean upon return and then realizing that it means something totally different because they had not encountered race in the way that um, black bodies in America and the Caribbean had, and 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 Norman Aragon as well, just just wrestling with being biracial and not really feeling at home in any place, and that the invisibility that 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 resulted in, um, both figuratively and literally. And so I think in making the characters one, I tried to sort of stray from those binary forms and then to realize that I wasn't only telling their story, but I wanted to also use them to tell the story of the groups that they were representing. Okay. Um, can I actually have you take a little bit of a step back and take me through almost the life cycle of the novel from conception all the way up through publication, ultimately at the end of last year. And if there were any sort of hurdles or major changes that you had to make to the book. Yeah, sure. Um, so I wrote a first draft in, um, so the first 20 pages that I was telling you about that came from, and I, and I 
even though I was calling it myth before, I hesitate to call it myth because my my grandmother, when I visited Liberia in twenty um, in November of last year, she she said that this woman and her cat it actually happened. So <laughs> I initially um, what they would tell us it, it was in the form of aphorisms, really. Um, they would say, you know, don't hum a cats, be kind to cats. Remember that old woman, she beat her cat to death and the cat's ghost jumped to her roof and her house fell down. So don't hum a cats, right? And so those few sentences, they stayed with me throughout my life. And <laughs> I was very kind to cats. But when I was, um, when I was in college, my last year in undergrad, I wanted to explore African fiction, as I said. And so I wanted to flesh out one of these aphorisms the woman and the cat being one of them so I wanted to give the old woman a name and I wanted to give the cat the cat a personality and intentionality and that was about 20 pages or so and when I went to grad school and and that was at USC and I started thinking about what I wanted my thesis to be um, I went back to this piece and was really trying to determine, okay, so then what happens after this woman kills her cat and then the cat resurrects and kills her? Um, and I became fascinated with the, the superstition um, around that and the fact that, you know, if this, this, this did happen, then generations and generations later, you're still telling kids to be kind to cats. And um, so it was from there that the, the idea of Bessa came about and then I created her and the scene of her birth and um, naturally just started to write a story around what this girl's life must have been like on being born on this day that's determined curse and then when she eventually gets exiled wanted to also then explore what was happening in Liberia in the early 19th century and then of course that was the, the settlement the return of the freed blacks and former slaves from America and the Caribbean. Um, and that's where the larger story took form. And I knew that in order to tell this larger story, I would have to leave Liberia and tell sort of the story and experiences of those who ended up on that coast and in that country. And so I, I wrote it for my thesis. It was close to 600 pages, the first draft. And Ooh. it was really messy. And just one of those, it was just, it was, it was a mess. And so um, I finished it in 2009 and I put it away actually for a few years. I moved back to New York and I was working in nonprofit for a while and also working on um, my memoir and still writing. Writing was obviously always a part of my life, but publishing was not my bottom line or um, my main goal. I knew that or I had confidence um, that it would eventually happen at some point in my life. But there was no sense of urgency, um, I will say. And I don't know if that's a pro or con because, you know, I talked to, to some writer friends who say, hey, you know, I, I, I needed to write and create. And of course, now that's rare because most, most writers that I know have full-time jobs and have had full-time jobs for a very long time. Um, and then just write at night until, the, until you're, you're able to get a book deal or, or a teaching gig that, that makes you happy. Um, and so I was working full time. There wasn't a sense of urgency. And I, I put the novel away and I picked it back up in about 2013 or so, um, early 2013. And I began to edit again, um, or I began to edit rather. 
And that was a couple years. It took about a couple years. And in 2009, I had attended a writing workshop um, at Squaw Valley. And for and at the writing workshop, I met a few agents and they'd given me their cards and said, hey, if, whenever you're finished with your projects or if you have anything that you want to pitch, definitely send it our way. And I sent it to um, an agent that I'd met there, Susan Gollum, who is my agent now and she she liked it and agreed to work with me so I started to to work with her and I just edited over a couple years um and in 2015 is when she she went to market with it and it we received a lot of no's they were saying uh magical realism African context Mm -hmm. and it's not in YA because generally um they would recommend or want to want to um put it in the young adult genre but I said no I, I it is for adults it is adult fiction it just happens to have these fantastical elements but it is an adult it's for adults and so we received a lot of no's and then Grey Wolf being just the the beautiful angelic <laughs> platform that they are <laughs> they said yes they picked it up they loved they loved it and they were enthusiastic about it um but then they told me that it wasn't coming out until 2018. And it seemed like they were saying it wasn't coming out for another 10 years. Uh, <laughs> and that's because their roster, being an independent press, their roster is so small that uh, they only release a certain number of books a year. And we still needed to go through an editing round. So so I was, dread- I was like, 2018, three whole years. I have to wait three more years. And But of course, Grey Wolf, I, I was a huge fan of... of their roster so far and everything that they have put out and continue to put out I I'm a huge fan of as a writer and as a reader um and so I started to work with Grey Wolf and then in the beginning of 2018 that's when Black Panther came out and so Mm -hmm. the timing actually ended up being being pretty perfect because then all of a sudden people had a renewed interest in um just Afrofuturism is what they call it, or Black speculative fiction and narratives that were coming out of Africa um, that had these elements. And, um, and so I'm, I'm so excited about where the genre is going. There are some really incredible books <clears throat> that are coming out in adult fiction that engage with this, this drama. Of course, Marlon James's uh, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, and um, Normwali, Serpelli's The Old Drift is also coming out this month. And um, and there's just some really great, great um, historical novels coming out of um, the continent or, or in an African context that are employing speculative fiction that I'm, I'm pretty enthusiastic about. But yeah, so 10 years later, here we are. <laughs> Excellent. So I would actually like to take a minute to talk about your memoir that's coming out this year, I believe, right? Yeah, you know, it's supposed to. That's what we had planned on doing. But there there are so many things going on this year. I mean, I was on a on a pretty hectic tour in the fall. And then in May, late May, early June, I'm going to London for the UK release. And then paper comes paperback comes out in September. And so it's pushed back now. I think if it does come out this year, it'll probably come out in December. Um, and and if not, then during the first quarter of next year, um, because because it has been so busy and just trying to space out the work a bit. 
Sure. So with that memoir, I think one of the questions I always have when it comes to a memoir is how do you go about making it a story? Not necessarily an interesting story, but a story rather than almost like a report of your life. I know. I know. So <laughs> I'm teaching, I it, it's crazy. I'm teaching a, um, a, a nonfiction, like an essay writing class online with uh, Catapult right now. We have conversations um, in that vein quite a bit about what makes it, what makes it interesting? What makes it a story? And then how do you, how do you tell that story without lying? Right. Because the conversations that you're writing, the dialogue that you're writing in any memoir, um, I'm a hundred percent sure that it did not happen precisely as it's written on the page. Right. The dialogue exactly. at, 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 at least not the context or not the intentionality. And mm -hmm. But if you don't have dialogue in memoirs, then it is just that, an autobiography. And so I think it's the dialogue that, um, and these scenes that make it creative nonfiction. Um, but then the dialogue, how do you, as a writer and just as a humanist, um, reconcile the fact that, okay, I, I, I know that this is what was happening in the time that this scene happened. And I know what my intentions were and I know what their intentions were. And I remember those very clearly, but I can't say that, you know, I turned my head to the left and saw a plum tree at that very moment. Right. Um, and so I think that that's uh, a, a conversation that people continue to have and you have to, as a writer, give yourself, the license to be creative in the memoir or nonfiction form if you are interested in writing anything other than an autobiography. Um, and then also trust, trust your reader um, in, a lot of, in a lot of ways. I mean, you, there are ways that you can explore the intentions behind uh, a situation or a scene without having to do anything that's too loud or um, uh, ventures too much on the fiction for your reader to understand what was happening and why it was happening. Um, and so I think that balance and that, that the desire for that balance is ongoing with anyone who considers themselves a memoirist. I do not consider myself a memoirist, even though I do have a memoir coming out. Um, I chose to tell the story um, from a five-year-old voice first, and it's mainly in that childhood voice because I think that was the time that um, I was the most confused, but also felt the most safe around what was happening. My father told us that we were, when we heard um, gun gunshots, that people were beating drums. And when we saw people dead on the street, that they were just sleeping. And mm. so this world that, you know, he had formed was one that was very real for me at the time. And I chose to write about that world. And it goes back and forth. It, it's my five-year-old self speaking and then my contemporary self speaking and then returning to Liberia and then my mother's perspective and then back to the five-year-old self. And, um, and, and that in itself is a story not around my immigrating, although that is in there somehow, perhaps secondary. But the primary story I wanted to tell were was about these people 
in a country, a country that they loved, which is essentially imploding, and how they were able to make peace with it and also provide a safer space for those around them. My dad being one of those people. Um, My mother, of course, going back to get us out. And then also a rebel woman soldier who um, took a chance and, and trafficked us out of the country. And that, and if, if anyone asked me what the story was about, it would be that. I mean, I used the war and the context of the war to tell that story, but it was really about Liberians finding ways to save themselves. Mm. I mean, in, in that vein, I think, um, I think this would be a good time to talk more about your organization, one more book, um, and specifically what you believe stories can do for people or what you believe literacy can do for people and why stories are important. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I drowned myself in stories when I was younger. They provided um, just a safe space for me, libraries. My mom encouraged us to indulge the arts, whether it was painting or reading. And we spent a lot of time in libraries. So I would just read and read and read and read. And um, they really helped me to adjust and, uh, and assimilate. Um, and they provided the information I needed about my new home, which, which of course was America. And um, when I was in, additionally, when I was in undergrad, I worked with a nonprofit called Everybody Wins. And we would go into DC public schools and facilitate literacy workshops for um, third to fifth graders who who couldn't read. And I realized fairly quickly that when I presented them books with characters that they recognized and um, that were very culturally relevant, their interest peaked and then eventually their scores improved and reading became something that they loved to do and eventually something that they could do. And so that experience stayed with me. And of course, um, at TC, because I ended up going to Columbia, just like my mom into teachers college and studying um, anthropology and education. And my focus is on cultural, the cultural relevancy of children's books, specifically in um, a Liberian context or an African diasporic context. And um, during one of my visits to Liberia, I had taken a, I don't consider myself a children's book writer, but I'd, I'd written a book called J is for Jell of Rice. Um, and that was from some of the initial frustrations that I experienced in the literary, literary industry in New York and realizing that as a black woman, as an African writer, there were, there were expectations of what I should be writing that were, that were seldom aligned with, with what I knew of my truth and what I knew of my experience. And so I wanted to write a story and I did. And my younger sister, who's an illustrator, I asked her if she could illustrate and she did. And so I, I, I wrote a few of them and I used them as a pilot series to then present to writers and illustrators from groups that are rarely represented in books. Um, and and that is how my nonprofit came, came, came about. And during a visit to Liberia, I took one of these books into a classroom and showed it and and while a, a kid was reading it he sort of saw the, the words on the page jollof rice and started to giggle 
um, <laughs> just surprised and confused as to why Jollof rice was written on the page. And that was really profound because it's Jollof rice is something that everybody knows and we we sort of eat there. Every, I mean, across the continent, Jollof rice is made and every country will tell you they make it the best. And <laughs> um, Liberia is the secret champion, <laughs> even though the Nigerians and Ghanaians have the Jollof wars and Liberia is just sitting on the sidelines like, okay. <laughs> so, um, they all they all know what jello rice was but to see it on the page seemed just um strange and odd and 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 that really stuck with me and i i knew that i had to had to keep going and so we incorporated into a nonprofit, and we have th- 23 books uh for liberia and guinea and haiti and um, all of these are in partnership with writers and illustrators from these countries which has been totally rewarding to see individuals who are just as committed to literacy um, among these groups and making sure that the children in their home countries and the children who are underserved in the literary canon are seeing themselves. And then another component of our business is that we also um, create spaces for the these communities. So we created our, we opened a first our, our first store, our first space in Liberia, in downtown Monrovia in 2015. Um, and we are distributed through ministries of education and through local NGOs. And we also domestically are distributed through Amazon and we have a distribution partnership with Scholastic Book Club. So some of our books can be found through Scholastic as well. So um, it, it's just my bottom line. It's something that I have been passionate about for the last decade. And since my time working with Everybody Wins is, is finding um, how to create these materials and um, engage with the local community and make sure that they're the ones who are being the agents and they're the ones who are creating the materials as well that we're publishing and distributing. That is really, really cool. Thank you. Um, so for my final question for you today, and I will admit beforehand that it is an extremely loaded question, so my apologies. And it's the question I ask every author I interview, and that is, what makes a good story? And what things can someone do if they want to tell a good story, whether that be in a novel, a short story, a poem, or even at the dinner table? Hmm. What makes a good story? Um, it has to have a little bit of magic. <laughs> there has to be something that you would perceive as impossible happening in the story. I think that impossibility is what draws us in and lures us. So whether that be in the supernatural sense or just in the sort of serendipitous coincidences, um, things that we consider our wow moments, um, that has always created a good story for me. Um, and then what, what you said, what advice do you give to people who want to create a good story? That's correct. I would say pay attention to the wow moments, pay attention to those anomalies in, in your life. Um, pay attention to the things that are considered coincidences or serendipitous and um, by chance. I think paying closer attention to those, it connects us to um, this other world, this, this fantastic, really fantastic and incredible universe that we happen to be a speck in. And um, I think in focusing on those, we realize how, 
how deep and profound and and actually supernatural just our existence and our individual stories are and i think that enhances the art quite a bit once again that was Wea Tu more the author of she would be king which was released just this past september I strongly encourage you to go check out that book as well as her nonprofit, One More Book, and her forthcoming memoir, which you can expect either at the end of 2019 or in early 2020. I would like to thank her so very much for joining me in that interview. I hope you learned a couple of things. And please, I ask that you challenge yourself when it comes to the media that you're consuming or the the books that you're reading. Um, try to get outside your comfort zone a little bit. I myself really find myself, you know, stuck in this cycle of reading trope-heavy fantasy science fiction that is sort of grounded in Western mythology. And I found that in reading She Would Be King, I was challenged and it was really refreshing. And I wanted, I think it should be something that everyone should experience. And hey, She Would Be King would be a great place to start, especially if you're from, if you're somebody like me. But as for the future, I have a number of interviews coming up with, um, other authors of other genres. Um, so stay tuned for those. I expect a number of those to come out in the coming weeks. I will also be uploading another read aloud shortly after this episode. And I will not be doing myself justice without promoting the other podcasts I have working. Um, I have one with a couple friends of mine called the mouse in the house podcast, where we talk about sports uh, with a focus on basketball, but we found lately that it has been uh, drifting towards other parts of sports and the rest of the world uh but check that out it is also available on anchor and everywhere else it is a mouse in a house with garrison sam and noah and then i just debuted yet another podcast on anchor called audio trove which is a music discovery podcast um so be sure to follow and like that one it's also available on apple music and i expect it to soon be available on spotify but if you're looking for new music go check that one out and if you'd like to learn more about myself navigate out to my website at ntfinko.com that is ntfinko Com. But once again, I would like to thank Wea Tu More for joining me on this interview. Check out her book, She Would Be King, as well as her nonprofit, One More Book. But till next time, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day, the rest of your week. And remember, keep reading and challenge yourself and always keep writing and look for the little magic in the world. Thank you. Thank you.